HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're looking at things that have changed and things that are still in flux. From mothers balancing new lifestyles to the social stigma surrounding pumpkin spice. You got rid of the star rating system and talked about, like, I'm not going to use the word ethnic when I talk about food. They recognized that safety was our motivation and, and they were very you know, receptive to the changes, understanding what we were trying to accomplish. A cupcake or a piece of bacon or a glass of rosé is not inherently gendered. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Most restaurants today are in a constant state of change. Some are closing, many have already closed. In the midst of difficulty lies opportunity. Rents have and are dropping. Landlords are desperate for tenants with backing. Competition is obviously minimized. Talent is available and ready. Can opportunity be made from this shitty year? And if so, what other new challenges lie in the wait? Our guest today is Jorge Guzman, chef and partner of Petit Leon in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And prior to opening this spot, or about to open this spot, I should say, because it's still coming soon, um, Jorge was the executive chef at Surly Brewing in Minneapolis. He was a food and wine best new chef and a JBF finalist. Um, Jorge and his partners began building this restaurant earlier this year, and we're so excited to welcome you to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you. Um, it's been a crazy year, and I'm sure even crazier for somebody who is in startup mode. So I, I think I saw that you signed the lease for Petit. Le- is it Petit Leon? Yeah, it's Petit Leon. Perfect. Um, in June, is that right? Yes. Yep. June first was the date. June first. So that was what three months into the pandemic. Right. Um, so was, did you guys get a deal? Tell me, tell me how that <laughs> was. It like- was it planned? Was it something you were already working on? And, and We had plans to open a restaurant like way before the pandemic even hit. I think we're talking uh, June of last year. So 
um, I was traveling back and forth from Wisconsin where I was living at the time um, and coming to Minneapolis to visit my partner to look at, look at spaces. And, uh, you know, some things fell through. We didn't find the right space. Landlords were being, you know, pretty unforgiving with, you know, dropping rents and whatnot because the, the pandemic still wasn't around, in, you know, in the U S. So once January hit, it still wasn't like, you know, you still didn't feel that panic of, Oh, we, this is a real thing. Um, and I was driving back to Wisconsin and I drove by, the location and it was very early February and I saw a four lease sign and I was like, man, that is a great spot. Like I've been in this restaurant before. It's been around for a long time. I know that we could turn this into one of our, our concepts that we have and have been working on. And so I called my partner, Ben, and I'm like, Hey, give a, give a call to the, the guys at um, the former Blackbird and uh, let's see if we can't make a run at this. And that's kind of how it happened. So why did it take from February to June to finalize? Well, they had other people interested in the space. And so they were vetting other offers. They were, you know, it, it communication takes a long time sometimes. And, you know, it'd be weeks before we heard anything. And um, finally, I think it was narrowed down to like four different people. And they had an outside consulting company come in and help them make the decision. And we ended up being the winners of that decision. Things changed a lot from February to June. I mean, mm -hmm. things changed a lot day by day, week by week, yeah. let alone uh, three or four months, whatever that was. How did you, did you have more negotiating power as that time went on? Uh, yes and no. You know, we put a COVID clause into our lease and, um, you know, our rent was already pretty good. Um, Wait, what's know, a COVID clause? Well, I mean, for uh, we call it a COVID clause. You know, it's I'm not going to give you the details of what our specific arrangement was, but it was, you know, if COVID's around, you know, we're not going to be able to, you know, there's a chance we're not going to be able to pay all of our rent because we aren't operating at 100%. We might be operating at 20% or 40%. And, you know, so we negotiated, you know, something that we both thought were, was fair on either side of the, of the table. And we just called it our COVID cause clause. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of landlords are doing that right now because there are so many vacant spots that they're willing to build you a restaurant and take. You know, we'll we'll give you percentage rent of eight percent. You know, just to get somebody in the door. Wow. So did you get it? So it, you got a percentage rent deal to stop? No, I'm I'm just saying that's a that's an offer that's been <laughs> offered to us from from other people. You know, it's uh, we we get offers all the time. There's so many people looking for, you know, qualified tenants that they're willing to really, they're, they're really willing to negotiate on our behalf now, you know, before you find landlords that they don't care who's in their building as long as they're making money. And so they're not going to wheel and deal with you. They're going to say, Hey, these are our terms. This is what you pay, or I'll just find somebody else. Fortunately, our landlord really cares about his properties and who goes into them. And want us to be successful so it was a lot easier to negotiate with them that hey listen this month we might only make twenty thousand dollars versus what we had projected pre-covid what can we do to make sure that we're not out of our our lease or that we can't make a payment or that we have to close you know and that was kind of how we went about negotiating it Interesting. So how long does that hold true? Like, so basically do you have like a certain amount of time built in where like, it's a, yeah, there, it's not time, but it's more about, um, quantity of people that we can serve. 
And it's, it's, you know, a lot of the governors right now are saying, okay, you can do 20% capacity right now, or you can do 50% capacity. Um, I, I will tell you that our COVID clause extends up to 80% capacity. That's so, this is so interesting because you're the first person that we've heard <laughs> yeah. at, you know, being able to negotiate something like that. And remind us, um, just for us and our listeners, what is the current in Minnesota currently, what is your capacity constraint? Our capacity constraints are 50% indoor dining and a maximum, right now, a maximum of 10 people per table within the same, I think, family. And it was, it was four, then it went to six, and now it's at 10 because I think of the, I think the holidays. So they keep on increasing. Right. Yeah, it's super interesting because it seems like, you know, it's that we being based in New York today, we have we have a lot of guests from New York on and last last week we interviewed um, the folks from Dame and they're about to they're going through a lease negotiation process and their landlord well, nobody nobody's negotiating with them yet in New York. People rather landlords here would rather have spaces sit empty, which is I think why people are going to be going to markets like Minneapolis to yeah. a restaurant instead because people are actually willing to negotiate and in touch with the reality of what's happening in the world. So that's encouraging. Absolutely. Um, so interesting. So are there other are there any other opportunities that have been a little easier, you know, given what's going on? Is it e- easier to, to find a good contractor where you're getting lower estimates on building process or well we did all the work ourselves. Um, because we needed to save money and we, we didn't do any construction. We just did cosmetic work. Um, you know, we did have some work that was done for us, but we know a lot of people in the, in the trade industry. And so, you know, we, we do get a bit of a deal that way, but I have heard that, um, you know, prices of lumber have gone up that people's original quotes have now changed because of, you know, the increase in prices of material. I have heard that that has been an issue for some other people, but for us, you know, we did most of the work ourselves and we, we stuck to a pretty tight budget. Yeah, I was going to ask you about logistics of like, you know, some of the simple things that, you know, we see in our business of, of making clothing, the slowdown of um, manufacturing and stuff. I'm curious if things like chairs and upholstery and those kind of things are really delayed or slowed down on yeah. time, depending on where they're coming from. Absolutely. Like we're, we've been waiting on these really large mirrors that we ordered for the last two months, you know, and they keep saying it'll be here at the end of the month. And we have, we, we kind of knew that was going to happen. So we put our orders in really early. Um, and we did, it does, t- it does slow down a few things, but we haven't had to order a lot of things. And so we're ahead of the, of the, the game right now on that point. What about in terms of, I saw you're doing like recipe developing and menu mm-hmm. planning and all of those kind of things. And obviously like the whole food chain is in supply chain there is also impacted. How um, have you been able to like plan a menu and cost out what it's going to be when you open and how do you cost for something when you have like only can serve half of the diners that you intend to? Well, yeah, the thing, you know, I think in like, January, February, March, April, May, even going into the summer, you saw the, the food chain and the supply chain start to be become really affected. Um, and I think that kind of like turned a little bit for the better come summer because outdoor dining, uh, restaurants were able to order more food and, and things kind of clicked back into place a little bit. 
And so right now we're not seeing a big hiccup in anything, which is great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm able to order what I want right now. Um, and there's, uh, some companies have a lot of things that had to go into storage, you know, in terms of like, you know, that they'll free some of their, their products and, and they'll sell them to you at an extremely discounted rate because they just need to get rid of them. Um, and some of those things are, are worth looking into. Um, so we haven't really seen a hiccup in terms of um, product needed. In terms of like R&D, like, man, I have, I have had to change my menu so many times because we're going to be really careful about how we open. And, you know, we haven't announced how we're opening yet, but we're, I think we're just going to do takeout to start. Um, we don't want to mess around with, you know, having people come in, we get a case of COVID, we have to close down for four or five days to get everybody tested, make sure that we're all, you know, negative. And then if one of us isn't negative, then we have to find somebody to, you know, place, replace that, that cook. Cause we're, it's only the owners and like two other people that are working. So our overhead's super low, but in terms of like the menu, um, you know, I, I originally did a menu for in-house dining. And so I had it ready to go and it was ready. It's like, okay, this is what we're doing. And then, you know, we're like, well, we have to have takeout because we're seeing how the game is changing right now. So I have, I had to create a takeout menu and I've never in my 25 years of cooking had to specifically create a takeout menu for any concept I've done. So it's, it's really interesting because it completely shifts the focus of, you know, almost like what the food was going to be. And you have to find a really fine line of like, can I check my ego at the door and sell people what they want, which is baked pasta dishes, hamburgers, chicken sandwiches, easy salads, things that they can take home to their family, things that they can pop in the oven and bake really easily and have something like, you know, affordable, good, um, tasty. It, it holds its integrity as it travels, you know, and that's kind of what we've had to do, but we still want to keep our identity with what we are as Petit Leon in that to go. So it's been a really cool challenge to kind of craft this to go menu while still trying to keep that Petit Leon identity in the, in the flavor profile and the food that we're going to do. Um, and I, I have found it really, really interesting. And, you know, I don't, I'll put a fried chicken sandwich on the menu. I don't give a shit. I want it to sell. You know, I want people to come in and come in twice a week if they can. Um, and we want it to be a neighborhood restaurant. So it's been really interesting that, that whole practice, um, the last like three or four months. What is, uh, talk to us a little bit about food costing in a takeout world. Cause you're, you know, you're obviously adding the yeah. paper products and the delivery and the, you know, the waiting time and all those things. How do you, how does that change versus dine-in? Well, I mean, obviously it's the, it's the paper product. We're not doing um, a delivery service right now. Um, we're going to do curbside pickup. You know, we've got a really easy, accessible restaurant, a parking lot in the back, and a couple spots out front that people can pull up to. But um, you just have to adjust your cost and make sure that it's in line with what would be affordable. You know, In Minneapolis, you can't get away with selling a $17, $18 hamburger but you can get away with selling a $15 one. And if it's at, let's say 36% cost, is it worth keeping that on the menu or not? You kind of have to like decide, am I going to sell a hundred burgers? In that case, like, yeah, let's keep it on. Um, so it's just really like a balancing act. You have to really have, you know, food that's going to be able to sell well and 
um, make your margins on it. So, you know, I think any chef can cost a menu out in an item and then look at what the paper product is and, you know, add a couple, add 50 cents to, to each dish just because, hey, this is to go, this is takeout. So so the decision for not opening indoors is more like for a safety concern, more so than like there's no way to be profitable with a limited number of seats. Is that? Is that yeah, that's, that's, that, plays a, that plays a role in it as well. Um, you know, we are going to do, um, we created a thing called a dinner series or dinner party. Um, and that's basically where once a month we will open for in-house dining and serve um, like a curated menu. Like our first one is gonna be a sneak peek of Petit Leon. So it will be those original menu items and it'll be a ticketed event and it'll be spaced out and you'll have to buy a ticket so we'll know exactly who's coming at what time, how long they're gonna eat and, and be safe about it. Now, if we were open for general dining, you're only able to have 50% capacity and that would make us busy enough to where we would have to hire more people just to keep up with, you know, our daily operation. And at that point, that overhead doesn't make it worth it to open. You're, you're, you might break even. Um, and is it worth breaking even to potentially have somebody come in that's sick, close down again, you know, put your, your staff on furlough, then rehire them again, dealing with unemployment. It just, it just was so much of a headache that we as owners would rather just do everything ourselves right now until we know it's safe enough to start hiring more people um, and open slowly, you know, and safely. What does that, what does that look like? Is that a, a number of, or a percentage of cases? Is that, you know, just a general feeling in the, in the city and how people are responding you know, or. I have, we haven't even talked about it yet. We're so, we're so in the weeds with trying to get this place ready. Um, in the next few weeks to, to open that I'm sure that conversation will happen um, throughout winter. And we're, we're kind of, we kind of want to see what winter's like this year. And I think um, one of our other partners, Travis, you know, was uh, listening to NPR or, or something. And every pandemic in history has lasted about 18 months. You know, if you go back and you, that's the, the statistic that he overheard. And so if that's the truth, you know, you know, I think June is when things should start normalizing. And that's, that's a hope on our end. Um, and then we'll see what happens, but we're, we're going to kind of take it month to month and kind of see what happens. If the number starts skyrocketing, obviously we're not going to, we're not going to open, you know, if the numbers kind of normalize, then maybe we'll add one more night a month, you know, and if things start dropping, then that's where we can start, you know, making a very slow shift into bringing people into our dining room. No outdoor dining in Minneapolis this winter. Oh God, I, I wish. <laughs> you know, there's there's some places that can put a tent up and heaters, but we just don't have that that space. I mean, how cold does it get in Minneapolis? That has to be some light oh, fine heaters. It gets cold. I mean, you're looking at like negative twenty on some days as the temp. I mean, do people have an appetite for the outside dining and that like? I, how do you even you know? know yeah, I think so. There's a, an event that's put on by. Um, one of the Dayton brothers here and it's, you know, it's celebrating the North, you know, and, and what we are, you know, we're a cold state and he puts on this great event where there's a lot of dining, there's a lot of events and, you know, people bundle up and they, they go outside. That's the best way to weather winter 
is to not just sit inside all day. It's like get out, snowshoe, snow ski, you know, hit up anything that's going on because things still go on. You just have to kind of brave it. Just a lot of bourbon and like a lot of (laughs) (laughs) a lot of hot dish and a lot of bourbon. (laughs) That is awesome. I love that people are braving it. So tell us about some of the other things that are on the punch list to actually get open and going. It's, you know, today's our first day in the kitchen, um, actually prepping to get our food ready. Um, you know, we have a few dishes left to kind of R and D, but they're not, it's not brain surgery. It's like a fried chicken sandwich. We just have to figure out what marinade we want to use. Um, and then Travis, um, our other majority owner, he's been pretty much handling the bar and doing wine tastings and, uh, cocktail tastings, you know, um, liquor tastings and whatnot and, and building out the rest of the bar. Um, and kind of like, you know, he repolied all the floors, uh, just a lot of like manual labor. We still have the bathrooms to do, um, you know, to put up a bunch of like stenciling and whatnot and the floors need changing. And so it's a lot, it's a lot of cosmetic work. We're, we could open and serve food relatively soon, but we want the space to look good too. So what, tell me about, so you're going to open likely outdoor or sorry, takeout only, but you're still going ahead with getting the space ready. Is that why, why is that just because? Well, you, I mean, it's just kind of like a mentality. It's almost like as a cook, if you think about it, you know, if you're working on your station and your station's a mess, uh, your, your focus is also going to be a mess. Um, and if you're working in a space up front and everything, you've got chairs and nuts and bolts and paper and everything all over the place, you know, it doesn't feel good to be in a space like that. And, you know, we have really big windows that open up to the the street and we don't want people coming in or coming by and like looking in and seeing the place a mess. We want them to see what it'll actually look like because that'll create anticipation because at night the space is so sexy. I mean, it's dimly lit, really dark wood, like great neon sign up top. Like it's just like you want to be in here in the winter drinking cocktails and eating food. Yeah, I feel like it's a teaser for your, uh, <laughs> your pickup orders now. It's, it's kind of yeah. a good way to sort of right. break in like a soft opening. Absolutely. We love the – Alex and I are big fans of, of, DIY, of DIY. So I, I love to hear that you're doing that. A lot of people, you know, don't. They hire the big, like, yeah. nine farms and all those kind of things. So how did you – how did you – like, did you do design yourself? Um, how did you budget for that? How are so, you parceling your time? Tell us all about that. We have um, we have one investor, you know, and we got lucky with, with that. Um, and, you know, we have – we have, it's a second-generation space, and so we didn't need a ton of money to get this open. You know, I think for one of our spaces, we were looking at, like, 1.2, and right now that's just – that's just a bad idea. Uh, so, you know, we, we, pandemic. Yeah, right. So we found this space and we're like, okay, here's what we want it to look like. We did hire um, a design firm, um, but we did a lot of that work with them. You know, they would suggest things and then we would kind of be like, this is what we're looking for. This is what we want it to look like. And they did, they helped a lot because they're able to kind of draw that up and have you look at it visually before it's even in the space and they're good at sourcing certain things, but 
we had a really good idea of what we wanted to do. So we did we did all the all the work. We sanded every everything that was wood in the front. We sanded. We restained. We polyed. We did the tables. Um, you know, we we had to regrout the kitchen, which was a fucking nightmare. You did that um, yourself. Yeah, we we had to take all the old grout out and then completely regrout everything, and that took us about a week to do. Um, you know, we have had like electricians in, and you know, just to set up some things that we don't want to mess with. That we don't want to burn the building down. <laughs> so, you know, we have Your had insurance a, uh, company will they, appreciate that <laughs> exactly right. So we have done most of the work ourselves, um, and that's kind of what's taken it, you know, a little bit of time too, because there's only four of us. Um, and one of our partners just had a baby. So, you know, can't expect him to be here all the time. And, you know, I have a, I have a son that's young, 14 months old. And then my, my chef has twins and it's like, you know, there's a lot going on that still needs to happen in your home life. At the same time, we're still trying to open a restaurant. So that also has put a little, you know, ball and chain on the progress in terms of wanting to move faster. But I think everything happens for a reason and we're, we're in really good shape right now. You guys are moving pretty fast. We took possession of the space in June and we're only in, in October. I mean, people take years to build out. So that's true. Considering you're doing it yourself and have young families and are, you know, doing other things. I, I think you should be giving yeah. it. <laughs> no. I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah. yeah. But people don't understand. I mean, especially in like the COVID world, having as Alex and I both have young kids too. And it's like, you don't understand, especially during this time frame when childcare is super limited mm-hmm. because you can't get childcare to come and help. And yeah. there's are closed and all those kind of things. Like working parents are at like a financial disadvantage. And I don't think people really talk about that enough because it is, it's true. It's like, it's a huge problem that childcare is not universal and really, you know, readily available to everybody. Right. Um, Absolutely. So that's also a full-time job. Hmm. Anyways, I, go ahead, Al. Um, I, I know you are starting with a very uh, small and pair back team, but tell us a little bit about, the job market in Minneapolis, is it, you know, are you able to, is it very easy to, to get um, good quality staff or people, you know, reticent to come back to work? I think so. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that yeah, I'm in a city where, you know, people know who I am and want to work with us. Um, and so I actually hired my old sous chef from Brewer's Table as my chef de cuisine. His name's Rhett Roberts. Uh, and that was, that was a huge hire because, you know, we've worked together in the past. We, we think the same way. Um, it just, it's such a stress reliever to have him there because I don't have to, I don't have to explain everything to him. He just kind of knows what to do. Um, and then there are, there've been a lot of people that have approached us like, Hey, if you need a hand, give me a call, um, you know, both front of the house and back of the house. So there, there are people looking for, for work and, we haven't had to hire anyone yet, but I think when we do, it won't be an issue. I think, I think people need work right now because our unemployment is, is garbage. It's 300 bucks a week, mm-hmm. you know, maximum. Like how the fuck do you pay your, your rent at, you know, what is that? 1200 a week. That doesn't pay rent in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's, it's sad. So people need to work. Uh, and if we can provide that, we, we would love to, but, we just can't right now until we, we become a little bit busier and things become a little safer.
Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, to know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. Danone North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But Danone North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. So when you, so I want to talk a little bit about, I think it's a good segue into like the model that you will have once you guys are up and going. It sounds like as part of your business plan, you are not doing tipped wages. You're going to do one, you're going to do like an hourly rate for everybody. Is that correct? Yes, correct. So tell us a little bit about that decision and how you're like making the economics of it work. Well, I think the decision, you know, we have a couple big players here in town, you know, Gavin Kaysen, Alex Roberts. Um, and they, you know, these bigger, these bigger restaurants um, have been talking about going to a service charge. Um, and that allows us to give back to our employees, you know, it allows us to save some of that percentage for healthcare. It allows us to supplement their hourly rate. Um, it allows us to do so much more than just, you know, having a server get tipped 20% or 18% or whatever they're getting on top of their wage. Um, which a lot of times equates to like, you know, anywhere from 26 to $50 an hour, depending on where you work. Um, but that's only half of the team, you know, what happens to the rest of the team that doesn't make that amount of money that puts in as much work. And then as an owner, you can't do anything about that because you're not allowed to, you know, tell anybody what they're, what they're supposed to do with their tips by law with the service charge. You know, we, we control that and you have to be transparent about it too. You know, that all that money is going back to the employees is not going back, um, to the restaurant, you know, it's, you know, we might save some of it for a healthcare plan that we might have. Uh, we haven't, you know, figured out the nuts and bolts of it, but we know that we want to be able to pay our employees a livable wage and a livable wage isn't $15 an hour. It's more than that. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a big conversation. There's a lot of details that have to go into it. And, you know, we need, we're going to talk to our accountant the best way to do it. You know, what can, what's the best way to figure out how to make sure that everybody that works for us is taken care of and can make a livable wage where they're not stressed about money, you know, and that's hard to do in the restaurant industry, but I think it's possible. Um, and we're just, we're going to put our best foot forward and, and see how it goes. Have you, and why do a 20% 
like automatic service charge instead of say making the menu prices just 20 percent higher have you Uh, it's like yeah it's like sticker shock i mean yeah it's hard to like walk into a restaurant and see that that like we said that burger all of a sudden goes to 21 dollars. you know it's like i'm not going to pay 21 dollars for a hamburger but you'll tip 20 percent at the end of the night right i don't don't understand the psychology behind that but you know that's kind of why yeah, no, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, there was a big, you know, no eliminating tipping movement here, you know, obviously spearheaded by like Danny Myers and Andrew Tarlow also, and some of them reverse course because of exactly what you're saying is like they, they weren't doing the service charge model, which is interesting because again, it's like, you know, you're saying essentially you have to tip 20%, which I think is wise, but basically there's consumers just aren't really willing to pay for the real price of food. It's really right challenge yeah and so that's part that's part of the other problem is you know it's people expect so much for so little and it's like come come work for a week in a, in a restaurant and you'll have a better understanding of why we have to charge what we charge do you think that's changing at all given that people yes. are been cooking for themselves for the last eight months i think so I think they'll I have think. a little more respect for what what it takes to to operate and to serve and the cook and create and all those things you know i i don't there's a there's a really large handful of people that understand and understand dining and know that you know it does cost to go out um you know and i spoke about this with someone yesterday um we're not trying to take advantage of anybody by charging more we're just trying to charge what it actually costs us to produce to pay our staff and to also make money because we are a business and so at the end of the day, like as an owner, I also have to make money to provide for my family. That's okay. Like it's okay for me to make money. You know, it's okay for me to charge you what it actually costs. What's not okay is not understanding that and thinking that the restaurant industry and people that work in the restaurant industry, it's a part-time job. You know, oh, you're just doing this until you go do your real job. It's like, no, I mean, it's like, what, what did they say? 16, 16 million, 11 million restaurant in, in people lost their jobs like it's an, it's an essential job and then that that's another large conversation i mean if you think about you lost all the restaurants what would that do to the farms what would that do to our food chain what would that do to our transportation you know it's such a big big conversation our uniform companies yeah <laughs> terrible <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> everybody, absolutely everybody everybody feels it yeah it's a huge ecosystem and i think people don't don't always get it. I think there's a lot of people, like you said, that, that do, and I think yeah. are, are are moving that direction. Um, we have to, we have a we have a great dining crowd in Minneapolis that, that they do get that. You know, they they've really shown up um, these last eight months to, to support um, our restaurants and our and our dining scene, and that's huge. And they continue to do so, which is really really impressive. Yeah, I mean, I think people. I'm we're sick of cooking for ourselves, and oh, me too. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so I'm so tired of doing it. It's, I just want takeout. I just want to go eat at a restaurant. I know it's crazy because it is true, and it's like there is a lot of labor. It's like we get home from work at five, and we're like cooking and cleaning up until yeah. we put our kids to bed. It's two hours, and that is people need to get paid. I don't, you know, it's yeah. hard, and I, I hope that it does change the psychology in the consumer's mind. Um, after they've been the prep cook, you know, saute chef and the dishwasher. <laughs> and the dishwasher, yep. So, 
you know, here's hoping. Um, there was one other just like quick, interesting thing that I was curious about that I saw also is that you guys are working on like a ghost kitchen concept too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I have a concept called Pollo Pollo al Carbon and Pollo al Carbon is just grilled chicken. And so, um, in the Yucatan where I'm from, you know, and also like Sinaloa and pretty much all over Mexico, you know, there's grilled chicken shacks. And I remember being in Tulum one year about like five or six years ago. And I ate at this place called Pollo Bronco. And I was just like, man, this is so good. It was just grilled chicken, salsa, cabbage, tortillas, and beer. And I was like, eh. and I was like, I got to do this. Like this, this has to be a thing. And so I've just kind of like had that in my back pocket for a long time. And then um, things in Wisconsin, you know, kind of took a nosedive. And so I, I was like, well, here's a good chance to try this out. And I just started doing pop-ups to see how it would go. And uh, it got really well received. And, it, you know, for me, it's, it's just a really fun concept. It's very simple, but it's straightforward. It's family friendly. It's tasty as hell. It's a really great to-go option. And, you know, I never thought of opening a ghost kitchen. I didn't even know what a ghost kitchen was until like two weeks ago. And so I said, can you enlighten our listeners too? like, what exactly is a ghost kitchen? So as I have read it, a ghost kitchen is a concept that opens up as a to go only out of a different location that isn't their original or, or their original spot. They might not even have an original spot. It's just a concept that is open somewhere else that you can get their food. Right. So now your ghost kitchen for Pollo Pollo is in? The Tea Lounge. And is that already up and going? It will be when we open. So you basically you'll have two concepts. <laughs> yeah, why not, right? Why not? Go big or yeah. go home. Absolutely. And are you marketing them totally separately or will there be some like crossover how do you keep it straight there's, so i have like i'm managing all three instagram accounts right now for okay. myself petite and instagram and uh pollo and that's a full-time job like it really is it takes like three of three hours a day to do that stuff and so like there is a little crossover it definitely will be on the website um where you can it'll you can click the to-go menu and it'll be an option to get it um you know, word of mouth is big. And then, you know, social media is kind of the best way to promote it. From a, um, I'm just curious too, because since it's operating out of the same, out of Petit Leon, so is that, are your business partners from Petit Leon also involved and Poyo Poyo? How do, how do you work that piece out? So we have, we created um, a restaurant group called, you know, Duck Soup Hospitality. And so Petit Leon is our first endeavor um, we've got some other things in the works. We all have our different ideas. Um, you know, the way we drew up our contracts was we can all kind of do what we want, um, whenever we want. So Poyo Poyo right now is just kind of a, a way to help support more, of, more of what we're doing. It's like, it's a great option. We're hoping that it'll help bring in more revenue for us to be able to support, you know, paying our salaries and, and getting us, you know, through the pandemic. Well, it sounds delicious. I'm like, I'm ready for it. So it's it's pretty tasty. Yeah. This is how we're doing, Steve. Cool. Anything else you want to share about what it's like to uh, build a restaurant and during a pandemic and make sure it's scalable and workable for the future? 
I don't know. I mean, it's almost like the pandemic is, it's, it's like a constant thought, but you can't focus on it as in terms of like, can we do this or not? You just kind of, we've just kind of plowed ahead. You know, it's, it's scary because if we fail, we owe a bunch of money and then we don't have money. Um, but you can't think about that because if you let fear creep in it, it just kind of takes over. So we're really hopeful and I think we have a really winning combination of, you know, our team, our concept, um, the community, you know, where we're located. Um, it's just going to be, it's not the, it's not how I thought I would open my first restaurant. And that <laughs> that's a story in itself. Never is. It's all about people, place and product though. And it sounds like you got those three figured out. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Well, we always like to talk about, we always like to announce opening soon. So is there anybody, is there any dates you want to share with us or are they all still TBD? They're all still TBD, but I would really say that I would, and within two weeks we should be open. Cool. Um, and anybody else, any other friends in Minneapolis or elsewhere in the country that have recently opened or are opening, you want to shout out? Um, God, I don't know right now. Everybody's kind of hunkered in. Um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of support from my friends here in Minneapolis. You know, Gavin's been a great support. Um, Alex Roberts always has been a great support. You know, Peter Campbell of Red Wagon Pizza. Um, just a lot of great support. You know, I, it's it's crazy how how much people have really, like, shown up for us. It, it's been really, uh, really awesome. Awesome. Um, it's all about community too. Right. The only one we want to shout out today is hell of a time from the team behind all day baby. They opened this past weekend on um, the 16th of October and we had um, Lynn on the show for episode 52 and she talked, she, she previewed it. She, she had just decided to open it and that was like three weeks ago. So they got this concept off the ground super, super quick. So LA friends, please go check out Hell of a Time. And if you haven't listened to episode 52 with Lynn, um, it was a really good one. So there's that. Um, the other interesting thing that's happening in New York City that we just wanted to shout out is that there's a 10% surcharge now added to all dining. So similar to your to your surcharge for, um, for COVID to help with restaurants, um, actually buy PP, P PPE and support their team during this time. So we actually, I think it's kind of cool. And I hope diners embrace it. Um, that's it. Al, you want to wrap us up? Yeah. I wanted to do one other shout out that we, uh, came across last week. That's been around for a little while, but it's called pizza to the polls. So everyone definitely needs to get out and vote. I know that there's a lot of, um, early voting opportunities already rolling and, New York opens up next week, but if the lines are crazy long, there is this nonprofit that will send pizza to the line so that you have a meal if you're standing there for 10 hours. So it's a really, it seems like a really cool uh, organization and you can donate um, on their website to donate to them at polls.pizza. Um, and you can follow them and message them if you are hungry and standing in a voting line uh, on Instagram at pizza to the polls. So check them out. I think that's really cool. Uh, thanks again, Jorge, for being here with us and chatting. We're really excited to hear um, how your concepts get up and off the ground during this crazy time. Um, you mentioned that uh, social takes up a lot of your time. It is, <laughs> it is certainly something that um, 
is fun, but time consuming and challenging. How do we, how does everybody find you on your, uh, on the social? Uh, it's Jorge Guzman one as my Instagram. And then we are Petit Leon, Minneapolis, and we are also Poyo Poyo, Minneapolis, MPLS. Cool. Uh, we will put a wrap up of today's show on our blog at tillitnyc.com. We'll also send one out to your email. So if you're not on our email list, then make sure that you get on it. Um, and you can follow us at tillitnyc and at we are opening soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Opening soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org, and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.